the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 127 of Magic Markets. It's going to be a goodie today. We've got a bit of a gun with us on the show. It's not West Side Story, it's Westbrook, and there are three of them here today. Looking forward to welcoming all three of them. But Mo, let me say hello to you first, all the way from Canada. Thank you, as ever, for doing this with me. We always have a lot of fun. Yeah, always a pleasure chatting to you, Ghost, but uh, more so a pleasure chatting to the team at Westbrook. And as you've indicated, you know, we've got the entire team out here today. We've got James Lightbody, we've got Richard Ashison, and we've got Dino Zuccolo all here, mainly because we want to get stuck into the weeds. We want to throw some difficult questions their way, and we want to unpack some of the very exciting stuff that's been happening up on Mud Island in the UK. Uh, I think with that, let me welcome the team from Westbrook. Guys, always a pleasure having you here at Magic Markets. Good to be here. Hi, Mo. Hi, guys. Good to be here. It's going to be Mud Island in Cape Town soon if this rain carries on. But I've got to tell you guys, I'm very excited to be talking about Yield Plus today because I am fresh from reading the results announcements from Pepco and Tiger Brands. And it is it is very dire out there. That is the blunt reality of it. So I think for South Africans looking for alternative investment opportunities the timing of the show is uh, possibly very good actually so Dino I think maybe let's start with you just a little bit of a recap on Westbrook Yield Plus for those who perhaps haven't heard it before on one of our podcasts together or seen you guys in the media because I think you've been pretty much everywhere actually talking about this you know what is Westbrook Yield Plus how is it performing and at the end of the day what does it actually aim to achieve yeah thanks Ghost Mo good to be here with you as always for some of those listening to the podcast they'll have heard about Westbrook Yield Plus before and I think what we're going to try and do today is go into a little bit more detail on a case study of a particular investment that we've got within the offering to try and unpack in more detail what it is that we do in Yield Plus and how it is that we're able to extract what we believe are higher returns in the level of risk we need to take. Westbrook Yield Plus itself 
is a Jersey domiciled fund that provides investors with a diversified pool of generally senior secured loans uh, against real estate in the United Kingdom market. It's, it's a very well diversified offering. We've got 48 loans in the portfolio now, no more than 6% of the NAV of the fund is in any one loan. The fund is focused on the generation of cash yield. So the idea really for clients is for that kind of a client who's looking for an uptick on perhaps, let's say, a two-year fixed deposit, which in the UK, I think, is probably yielding about 4 or 5% at the moment, without necessarily needing to move too far up the risk curve, that's sort of what Westbrook Yield Plus is, is trying to achieve. And there's some bells and whistles on it around tax efficiency and, and things like that as well. The fund is now generating a 9% pound yield, which I think is very attractive. I mean, if you compare that to where listed market returns have been over the last while, it's outperformed, which is the point of private debt you know it's a lot more stable predictable uncorrelated and very excitingly and I'm sure Rich will, will touch on this he, he's the one who's built this offering out over the years fund now has a five-year track record we've never had a down month uh, and we're at approximately 100 million pounds of assets under management as well in the offering yeah I think before we even go into the the detail the case study because that's really what is quite exciting. I just want to touch on something, Dino. You mentioned that you know you kind of your your target client, I guess, would be someone that's comparing to a two-year fixed d- deposit with a bit of a kind of a, a yield pickup on top of that. What does that mean from a liquidity perspective with regards to to the yield plus fund? Because I think that's also quite important. If you're looking at fixing to a term, what's the kind of time horizon an investor ideally should have when coming into this, and do they actually have liquidity? Should they require it? What does that look like? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, Mile, of the conversation we have with most clients. There's no such thing as a free lunch in life. And here, the trade-off that you're making is that you're locked in for a period of time in order to achieve that higher return. And clients often have this discussion with me. Should I look at cash? Should I look at bonds? Fixed deposit, yield plus, where does it fit in my portfolio? I think a lot of clients take like an either-or mentality. I must invest in yield plus or bonds or whatever the case might be. And I don't think it's necessarily that simple. You know, there's probably a place for both in one's portfolio. To answer your question, Yield Plus is either an 18-month lockup or a 36-month lockup, depending on which share class a client chooses. And then they can give us six months notice at the end of June and December each year thereafter. So clients need to understand that coming into this kind of an offering, you're in for at least 24 months. And what we do on the back end is we manage our loan portfolio and the duration of the loan portfolio in Yield Plus such that on average, the loan portfolio churns each 18 months. And that's very important because it allows us to actually generate real liquidity for clients if they want money out. What we've seen in the past with certain debt funds is that they run what's called an ELCO mismatch. So they promise clients liquidity within one set of time horizons and then make longer dated loans than what they promise clients. And that's all good and well for as long as you've got more inflows than outflows. But as soon as you've got more outflows than inflows, you have to do something called gating, which means, sorry, you can't get your money back in the time period that I promised you. And that's something that generally spells the end of a debt fund for, for many. And it's, it's something that we don't want to run the risk of doing for our clients because it would put them at undue risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Or the end of a bank for that matter, not too dissimilar to a Silicon Valley bank, etc. So really important to manage this stuff properly, which I know you guys do. I think flicking over to you, Richard James, you know, sitting there in the UK doing the hard work while Dino sits down here and does podcasts. Just kidding. You've never had a down month, which is very different to my equity portfolio, which has had a lot of volatility, uh, let's be honest, because, you know, it's an equity portfolio and things have been a little bit crazy. But you've never had a down month in five years, if I understand correctly. It would be 
interesting to just hear a little bit more about that journey, I think. You know, how does that work in practice? Yeah, so the fund started in uh, March 2018. Since then, as Dino said, we haven't had a down month in terms of trading. We have had some very low returning periods, especially during COVID, where we did take provisions and we did assess the portfolio and, and decrease the value of the underlying assets. And we continuously do that on a, on a quarterly basis. But the whole nature of the fund and the way that we invest, and, and I guess what's core to the fund's investment philosophy, is risk mitigation and capital preservation. And the whole, the whole point of this fund, it's not designed to take capital loss risk. What it's really designed to do is to preserve capital and compound that capital at a relatively low compounding rate, which is somewhere between cash plus five to cash plus seven. And for the last five years, cash was close to zero. Now cash is coming, you know, coming up at, at a record pace. Base rates in the UK are now four and a half percent. And that's pushing up the returns because most of our portfolio is floating in nature. And therefore, our fund return is ticking up towards the, the low double digits. But I think it is testament to the, the nature of the investment team, the investment committee, the way we assess risk, and that we have touch wood. We've, you know, we've managed the portfolio accordingly. No fewer than 12 hikes in a row from the Bank of England, just to your point around uh, how yield has come up in the last few years. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a very interesting uh, economic cycle so far. Yeah, I think with that kind of backdrop, you know, maybe let's get into specifics around a real case study. A deal, you know, how how has that actually performed in that kind of economic backdrop? Maybe if you can take us through some of the key points there in terms of a deal. So, you know, what were the underlying assets? Who was your partner? Maybe the economic backdrop when you put that into the portfolio and how that, this evolving macroeconomic climate has impacted the performance of that deal, some of the risk metrics, some of the returns to your clients. I'd like to unpack all of those kind of aspects and, and we don't have to do it all in one go. But, you know, I'd like to just see how has this behaved from when you put the deal in a portfolio through this economic climate? Because it's very important, I think, for our listeners to understand whether there are any material differences in the performance of underlying businesses, underlying investments between the listed markets, where there's lots of transparency, everyone can see what's happening in there, and then what happens here in the private markets, where a lot of people don't understand how that behaves, how that performs in a portfolio, as well as how the underlying businesses have performed as well. I don't know if you guys want to maybe jump into that and, and, and share some of your stories. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, there are obviously 48, close to 50 loans in the portfolio. I can't go through all of them. But I think one that touches on a number of key points that you that you mentioned is one that we called Location Collective due to the, the name of the sponsor behind it. And this one we did uh, at the beginning of this year. So to your point about the effect of rates going up, this was more one that, uh, you know, a few years ago would have been picked up by one of the high street lenders at, at much lower pricing. And we saw, due to the fact that uh, lenders are assessing their loan books, pulling back uh, a bit. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, Location Collective is a corporate entity that they've been running for 20 years, still founder-led. So one of the key principles for us is who are we backing? That's kind of the, the most important starting point. And uh, that business has been going for 20 years. It kind of managed uh, space for uh, movie and television studios around London. And over the last few years, they had bought up their, built their own studios and were hosting shows for, well, hosting agency space for the likes of Amazon, Apple, etc., all the big studios. So that, that was the background to the sponsor of a successful business. They had bought an uh, office block in Enfield, uh, sort of North London, for 5.5 million a couple of years ago. 
and they just paid for that in cash. And uh, it had a tenant in place, a, a tenant called EDTC, which is irrelevant. Uh, and they wanted to wait until that tenant lease was up and then use the space for, uh, for their studios, for the office components uh, that studios usually need. So that's kind of the backdrop to that, to that deal. They had uh, gone to the high street banks, which weren't interested in, the, in that deal because uh, economic situation A and B, they, it had this funny lease in it, so they didn't want any part of that. So it came to us through one of our partners that we work with uh, who originates a lot of uh, these deals and uh, asked us if we wanted, if we could lend 4 million against the building they'd paid 5.5 million for a couple of years before. Now the key thing is when, when we saw it, so we've got a good sponsor, we know that, we assessed the, the building, the asset, and it's in sort of greater, greater London, so it's a decent location. Uh, location Collective, the company behind it, had agreed that as soon as this other tenant left, they would sign a 20-year lease, unbroken, triple net, so just clean cash flow in place that uh, you know, would pay, pay the interest. So you know, that was generally a, a good situation. And uh, for the period before they, they'd signed the lease, they would sign a corporate guarantee, so we'd look straight through to the parent. So kind of you had a decent asset, you had a, a quality sponsor, and then um, we needed to assess the, the cash flow. So you know, the, the, the good thing about Westbrook is we have corporate and real estate expertise. So we looked through to the parent and sort of did a deep dive into their financials and were quite comfortable that you know, they sort of had much higher cash flow than, than was needed to, to sort of pay back our, our loan or even service the rent. So that was quite simple to, to get sort of three, tick all three boxes um, in this case. James, I have to ask you, how do the banks miss this stuff? I mean, is it just inefficiency? Do they not do enough digging? You know, you're sitting with a triple net lease. It sounds fantastic. I have no doubt it is fantastic. I've worked in banking, so I, I'm sure I can guess how they miss it. But I'm curious to hear from you. You know, in the UK market, is it just as soon as anything looks a bit too difficult to understand, they just say no, and that's where you guys can step in? Or how does it work? Yeah, I mean, sort of a, a number of things. Uh, number one, this is very small for the high street banks, you know, four million pounds. They're not, they're not particularly interested in that. Number two, that this was right after the, the Liz Trust debacle, if you can recall that, where the pound was tanking and et cetera, et cetera. So all the banks were sort of not interested in anything that wasn't core. And then, you know, with interest rates having gone up, they were already sort of risk off. So, you know, this would typically fall to, to maybe a, 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 another debt fund, but, you know, we'd, we'd got there already. And, and the fact that you had to assess the corporate ruled out sort of most of the real estate market. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the key. I think it, on the face of it, without understanding the corporate behind it and getting structuring that corporate guarantee, which wasn't on offer originally, right? The, the original proposal was that you lend against the building and you take a view. And, you know, we as a team, we restructured the transaction to suit us from a risk return perspective. And when you look at it, and, and again, we're speaking to Colliers who did the valuation for us, um, with that lease in place, the value of the building goes up to about 6.2 million pounds, right? So our, our loan to value is around 64%, right? Where, where we got a lot of comfort is you look at the value and you look at the, the performance of the, of the actual credit, the, the corporate business. And that business is making north of 6 million pounds of EBITDA. And a lot of that cash is dropping to bottom line. And that's been, it's been a very successful enterprise for the founders. And again, when it comes to who you're backing and understanding their business, and when you unpack that all together, it makes an interesting deal. However, when you start to look at these deals and you start to notice the hair on it, that generally tends to chase the high street banks away, right? Because it, it requires work. And for the quantum 
you know, a lot of banks will argue it's not worth worth the work. But for us, you know, yeah. Sorry, I think that's so important, right? Because if you just read the headlines, all of these scares around commercial real estate, certainly up here in North America, I mean, you've got vacancy rates ticking up, everyone's terrified about it. And I mean, this just shows how you can consider something from a different angle. I mean, if, at, its, at its essence, this is a commercial real estate deal. It's just that you've applied a different lens of thinking in terms of how you've structured the deal, how you've structured your security. And in effect, it actually, like you say, it gives you a better outcome from a loan to value basis if you have some of these, let's call it security measures in place. Now, I just want to understand it. I, I know James kind of went into the detail. You indicated how you've got to look through to the lease. You've got to look through to kind of the, the corporate entity on the other side. You also, I guess, have the you also have the property as security. How do you structure that from a seniority perspective? I mean, in the event that this goes badly, because again, not every deal you touch is going to, going to turn to gold. In the event that this goes badly, what does that chain of events look like for you as a fund and then for your eventual investor. I'm just trying to understand the process because it's very important for me as an investor to get to grips with that in the event that you know things don't work out the way you envisage at the culmination of the deal. I mean, Mo, you sound just like our investment committee. Those are that's the exact kind of question that that we get asked on every single time. And in this case, you know, there are various layers of uh, security and protection that we'd have. Um, to talk to the actual security, as you said, you have the property and then you have a corporate guarantee. So first thing that would need to happen uh, is that the lease would have to stop getting paid. And the only way the lease would stop getting paid is if the corporate were in trouble. And that's quite unlikely given they have very stable cash flows from the likes of Amazon, Apple, etc. But even so, if for whatever reason they just decided they weren't going to pay the rent anymore, we'd then sue them under that lease, which is um, from the parent for the 20 year face value of the rental income. And you know that would cover the debt right there and then. To the extent that that were, for whatever reason, wasn't fruitful, we would then potentially relet the property to another party. It is sort of a good location for uh, either offices, which was used before, or for these studios across the road from a number of studios and all the studios need office space. So you'd either relet it and then sell it again, or uh, at the end of the day, you would just sell the asset outright and you are at sort of a 65% LTV. So you can sell it at 35% less and still recover all our capital. I think from, from our perspective, Mo, the, the, again, when you look at the security structure and getting into a bit of detail, the, the property is housed in a, in a separate company, which we call a, an SPV, a special purpose company. We have the shares in that company as security. We also have a first charge mortgage bond over the property itself. So we have multiple routes to enforce should we need to over the property. We then have the corporate guarantee and the lease as security as well. So there are multiple points of attack should we need to. And we'd also incidentally block the corporate from raising any other debt while our debt was in the property such that they couldn't just go raise a bunch of other debts and then suddenly there was someone senior to us or or, you know, putting the corporate under pressure. So we made sure they weren't allowed legally to do that either. Yeah, that's a security package that most homes in Joburg would feel comfortable with, let alone a, an investment in the UK. That's very, that's very impressive. I mean, is that, is that a fair reflection of the stuff that's in the broader fund? I mean, there's a lot of loans. Certainly, they can't all possibly be the same. But is this case study a reasonable flavor of what you guys do? Or is it a little bit unusual? I mean, it's typical for us to have primary security and then have some other form of secondary security in the form of other assets or other collateral. So I would say that this is a typical structure that we would look to 
to, yeah. to cover. Certainly, certainly has elements of to, some of them. You know, the the properties are lower LTV and they're like a, a very deep leasing market. So you'd be leaning more into the real estate. Some of them are are the loans are, are to corporate, so that there isn't necessarily a property in there. Uh, but sort of the the points we talk through in here are are typical for for any deal that that we look at. And typically speaking, I mean, in terms of, and again, I guess this is the flexibility of coming to a, a specialized group like Westbrook. I mean, in terms of these loans, do you generally structure them as you know quarterly cash flows, monthly cash flows? Uh, do you do bullets at the end? Are they zero coupon type structures? Is it a combination of all of the above based on what you're looking for in the portfolio? Because upfront, Dino indicated how you guys do this very important asset liability mis- uh, you know, you, you manage the asset liability mismatch. That flexibility becomes very important at a portfolio level. I'm just trying to ascertain, do you have the flexibility of introducing almost different tranches, different uh, categories in a specific deal, some that give you cash flow, some that maybe give you more duration in the portfolio with less cash flow upfront. What does that look like? Or do you tend to do these for, uh, on, a, on a deal-by-deal basis where one deal would tend to have one set of payoff characteristics? So, so Mo, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no like standard transaction from, from that perspective, but I'll give you the terms of this deal. Um, and, and, you know, from, from, a, from a size perspective, 4 million is in the sweet spot of Westbrook Yield Plus. Anything kind of between two and six and a half, seven million pounds works really well for the fund. Um, we we got a small arranging fee and, and an exit fee that comes to to the transaction, and then we're getting a a, a really nice double digit interest coupon, which is sorry does that does that fee accrue to the fund or does that fee come to you as like a management fee? I'm just trying to ascertain does it comprise part of the return that you give to your investors or not? It formulates part of the overall return to the fund, and and that was shared with our partners that introduced the deal. To be fair. But more importantly, we, we designed the term of 18 months, right? So we structured the transaction duration of 18 months and we got interest is paid monthly on that transaction for, completely, right? So the business had enough cash flow through the lease to service that interest and we would rather take the cash than giving them any kind of flexibility on, on that for now. And again, having a monthly service coupon gives us a very kind of good signal as to whether they're performing or not, right? Because you get to check the bank statements every month to see if they paid you. So yeah, my, my, most, most of them are, are cash paid, uh, what we call that serviced. Um, some of the, another type of deal is where you provide a, a bridge where there's a change of use of an asset. And usually in that case, we actually lend um, a little bit more than actually the loan amount. So in this case, the loan was 4 million and we gave them 4 million cash. In those types of deals, you know, the loan may be 4 million, but we only give them three because we're leaving behind a million to pay our interest. Um, and in that case, we sort of pay, get the interest paid uh, in that way, if you will, even though they aren't cash paying the interest, they have to sort of, that's more of kind of a bullet profile. But always we're managing that, you know, as I said, this is an 18 month loan, may end up being a little bit shorter if they refinance it. Um, but, you know, often they're 12 months to manage that exact sort of liquidity uh, profile that, that was mentioned. I just want to bring it back to Dino here in South Africa, because obviously, Dino, you're having a lot of the conversations with South African investors. And certainly for myself, I can share how I would think about this, because I think this really has become quite compelling, to be honest. You know, as a South African, you're sitting with, in many cases, offshore exposure in the form of US equities. I think that's quite common. You know, people go off and buy shares in Apple and Microsoft and all those things, which personally, I think is something that, you know, it makes a lot of sense in a portfolio long term. Some of those companies, you can really just ignore for the next 10 years and let it run and it'll be okay. 
South African stuff, buy and hold at the moment is pretty rare. There's really not a lot on the JCE where I would hand my hats on it and say, this is a great investment I would buy for my three-year-old. There is not a lot. There really isn't. So I think when you're sort of looking offshore to look beyond just US equities, the way I would think about this, and I want to test the concept with you and then learn a little bit more about the minimums and the timelines, the platforms, the way to invest, this feels like quite a smart way to let your money compound in the UK. You know, is that one way to think about it? Like, can the, you know, can the interest from this be reinvested? Can you kind of get your money out of SA, close your eyes a bit to where the RAND is, because who knows what the RAND is going to do, and just leave this as a nice yielding sort of, my nest egg is offshore and it's doing ideally 9% a year. Of course, that's not a guaranteed return. Is that a way to think about this? Yeah, Ghost, look, I think it's quite a nuanced question that. So, 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 so starting at the beginning, I think a lot of clients apply this mindset that you've just spoken about. Should I be in US equities or should I be in UK private debt? And like, I'm not sure that, that that is the right way of looking at it because any well-constructed investment portfolio has different buckets, right? It's got your low-risk bucket, it's got your yield bucket, it's got your equity bucket, your high-risk bucket, et cetera, et cetera. So, so for me, the question is a little bit different. It's my yield bucket, how long am I prepared to put that money away for? And what return do I need to generate from my yield bucket in order to meet my return requirements? Now, UK inflation is running at about 6%. I mean, those numbers are bouncing around a little bit. But, but in simple terms, investors need to invest generally north of inflation in order to not become poorer in real terms, right? So, so a lot of clients are saying, well, in my low-risk bucket, and, and you can reweight. You can reweight from being overweight equities to being underweight equities and overweight debt. And I think that's maybe where this conversation comes in is a lot of clients are nervous about the future. They've been, frankly, been smashed in, in, in equity portfolios offshore. And they're saying, well, bonds are volatile and, you know, there's still the ability for mark-to-market losses in any form of public market. So, you know, I think a lot of clients are saying, here's an option which is steady, predictable, stable. And, the, you know, the, the comment's been made to me so many times over the last few weeks, everything's correlated in the world. And, and clients are looking for something that's not correlated. So for me, this is for a client who is not willing to put their capital at material capital loss risk, is looking for a hard currency return that is predictable and stable and you know, close to double digits, which on, you know, long-term private equity returns in the UK haven't been far off that 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 figure. And you 100% can have a tax arb here as well, to your point, because you can choose between accumulating. So there's three choices that you can make in Westbrook Yield Plus. The first is, do you want your distributions paid out or do you want them to automatically reinvest and therefore accumulate? If you accumulate, you don't trigger a tax event until such time as there's some form of a redemption from the fund. And that would be a capital gain at the end. So that's already an effective compounding benefit that you're only triggering tax on the way out. The second choice is, do you want to lock your money up for 18 or 36 months? There's a bit of a discount in fees in the longer locking class, which incentivizes clients to put their money away for longer. Just an anecdote on that. A lot of clients are so worried about liquidity and the ability to get their money back. But in my experience, 18, 36 months goes by a lot quicker than than what you think. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, clients find themselves in this world of, okay, well, now my redemption period's available. Do I want it? And then they just kind of leave it. Uh, and then the third is dollars or pounds. Um, obviously, the, the fund is invested in, in pound assets, right? So the dollar share class is just a swap, which is overlaid at the top. But those are the three kind of major decisions that clients need to make. 
From our perspective, what we have to do very carefully is limit how much money we raise. Because what Richard, James, and the team need to do each quarter is spend that money relatively quickly after we've raised it such that there isn't big cash drag in the fund. And also what we need to do is, is cater in our pipeline for the fact that the, the loans churn quite quickly. I mean, there's an 18-month odd average churn profile in the portfolio. And so this quarter, we, we raise every quarter. This quarter is June. We're going to take in about 15 million pounds and cap it very hard there. Uh, because that's the quantum where we feel that we're comfortable to spend the money responsibly in good deals. You know, these are small deals within within a reasonable period of time. It's interesting that you talk about buckets. There are two words that sound a bit like bucket, which I've said a few times when I'm looking at my US equity exposure in the past sort of year. I can tell you that much for free. But Dino, what are the sort of minimums? And, you know, for someone who's interested in this and listening to this, because I think it is genuinely really interesting for someone who's got the ability to lock money up and I like the thought of leaving it to compound. Like that for me is probably the most appealing thing. Speaking for myself now, not necessarily everyone listening to this. It's nice to be able to say, you know what, take the money out. That is a very decent yield. It's not rotting in a UK current account like so many people have done historically when there's just no yield. Your money just sits and does nothing. Whereas here it's actually doing something. So what are the sort of minimums that you need to be able to access this product? I can't recall offhand how many official wonders of the world there are, but compounding is the is one that's not on the list, but that absolutely is one. There's two primary ways you can access the fund. The first is direct. You need to have more than £100,000 to invest if you want to come in direct. But there's an increasing and large base of clients who are coming to us through one of, there's more than 30 uh, share portfolios, offshore endowment wrappers, custodial platforms, asset swap providers, etc., at lower amounts. And I think the, the best advice I can give you there is to contact your wealth manager if you want to get access and challenge them if they haven't heard about Westbrook Yield Plus to give us a shout. And we're more than happy to take them through the offering, the pros, the cons, the merits, and, and help them understand how best to gain access. Yeah, I think just a quick reference to the, the last show that we had done with you, Dino. I think we, we had you on with a team from Anchor. Uh, because I think Anchor were one of those partners with Westbrook to allow clients with maybe smaller minimums access to some of your portfolio. So just again, a reference point for listeners who may have missed that previous show. Go and check that one out. It's very interesting and different in that it gave us a perspective from the view of a client from a wealth manager. Um, one last one from me, Dino. I mean, obviously, you've kind of touched on the point in terms of you are in the capital raise phase here for this quarter. I think you mentioned 15 million pounds. Uh, you raised a very important point is that a lot of your deals are structured towards that 18 to 24 month type of cycling just as a headline level your fund has been growing i believe very well i'm assuming that a lot of those deals as they come up to the maturity tend to get rolled and so effectively your capital raise then hopefully should be going into funding the new pipeline the new exciting deals maybe just some insight if you're willing to share this some insight in terms of where in the life cycle of this fund are you do you have a lot more pipeline than you know just actual deals that you're going to be rolling uh, towards a new maturity what does that look like given where we are in the economy right now yeah i'm, I'm sure richard will have something he'd like to add to this question but what i will say is that you know, there's only so many deals that you can do in a particular niche of a market where you can churn them every 18 months and extract outsized returns relative to the level of risk that you take, right? So so alternatives to private market assets are a different beasts. They're, they're never going to be, Yield Plus is never going to be a multi-billion pound offering. It's like at a point you get so big that you begin to capture the market, right? So, so, so private market assets in our construct are 
by design smaller and more niche. And therefore, there is absolutely a critical mass that we will reach as, a, as an offering. Now, therefore, the fees are higher in private market assets because the ability to get big, really big, is, is smaller. So we, we, I think a lot of investors are used to 30, 20, 30 bips kind of as, as a fee that you'd, ex, that you'd see in the public markets. Here, you're higher than that. But I think the returns are, are more than compelling enough to justify this. I mean, I just maybe want to add, so, so Mo, very few of the deals, some of the deals extend. They generally extend for a couple of months because no, no, no exit works perfectly all the time. So if someone, let's say one of our borrowers is going to sell the property, it takes a couple of weeks or an extra month or so. We're very happy with that as a, as a business to kind of take on that risk. But we don't typically try and extend the same assets for another 12 months or another, you know, that's... that's would ra- we'd rather be refinanced, right? Uh, you know, we typically try and work out what the right loan term is for the borrower, given that the strategy that they're trying to employ. And if they don't execute that strategy, we want out, right? I think that's quite quite important from that perspective. There are the odd occasion where we, we don't mind extending with great borrowers, great sponsors, etc. In terms of pipeline, the pipeline is, is pretty good, right? I think as we scale and as the fund has now hit kind of the 100 million pound mark, you know, we're able to write ticket sizes, as we mentioned, somewhere between kind of two and seven and a half million pounds. That makes us quite relevant in what we call the low mid market. And that market, for the purpose of this conversation, is infinite. It's in the billions of pounds of volume of both corporate and real estate deals that we look at that fit the mandate of the fund. The team's working really hard in terms of managing that pipeline, especially given the fact that we are, I think, 98% deployed as we speak. So... You know, we are building the pipeline for quarter two. And from our perspective, 15 million pounds plus what we calculate the redemption figures will be from deals that are being refinanced, plus the interest that we earn, that we get paid in the quarter. 15 million pounds is the right number for us to make sure that we get to a reasonable deployment period kind of midway through the quarter. Yeah, I think it is to say, just to, to, to add a little bit more, just sort of on the more market facing side, Although I'm sure there are feedback loops when we have a five-year track record of just positive returns. Also now I have a five-year track record of actually delivering loans to borrowers. They sort of get repeat calls. You move further up the preferred list, you know, when they're going down. We used to get copied on emails with other people's names on them because they obviously just forwarded them on to us. You know, <laughs> uh, don't, don't see uh, as much of that anymore. But certainly as you get into a higher value target range of that sort of three to seven million pound loan, then, then absolutely we're getting calls all the time and our pipeline grows quite dramatically as, as a result. And I think we've also seen certain areas of the market. We have seen a treat from banks and, you know, interestingly, US, US hedge funds, US players that have funded a lot of this industry behind the scenes. They've all, they've all pulled back from the market or have paused in their, in their strategies on the market. And that's opening up huge opportunities for us as a, as a fund. James, that was hilarious. If you've ever worked in deal making, as I have, I can just imagine how that feels. Oh, great. I was on the, you know, that's like being invited to a mate's wedding three days before. You know you are there because someone cancelled and now there's a chair and there's a plate of food and you may as well go eat it. So the, the best, the best is when you go back to the corporate financier who sent that email and you tell them that they made the mistake. That's, that's more, amazing. That's more Absolutely amazing. Chaps, I, again, it's been a really fantastic chat. And I think where I would leave it personally is just yield is just so interesting in this environment. You know, it's something that I've seen a lot of rhetoric on in the market. I've written on myself. I've seen you guys talking about it is right now. 
you know, when yield can give you almost double digits, you've got to think very hard about the risk-adjusted returns in equities. There's always going to be great opportunities in equities, but broad equity exposure in this environment, I don't know so much. I think that yield has gone from being something your grandfather does to, you know, keep that pension alive through to something that is actually a pretty good tool right now. So well done on what you guys are doing. Thanks for being on Magic Markets. And for anyone interested in this, go and check out the Westbrook website. Go and find these boys on social media. It's not difficult to find them. Go and see what's going on and register your interest if this is something that interests you. So Dino, James, Richard, thank you so much, guys. Look forward to having Westbrook back on Magic Markets soon and good luck with the capital raise. Thanks. Cheers, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.